Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. I'd like to welcome you to another podcast. Let's talk about sex uh, with Lynn and Jen. And uh, today we're very fortunate to have uh, Biz Yoder with us. And uh, she is, I've known Biz for about a year, and she's an excellent peer educator worldwide. So today we're going to be talking, Biz, with you about your experiences in college and doing peer educational efforts there. And some of the things we are going to discuss are common myths and safe spaces and different gender attitudes in college on the part of men and women. Mm -hmm. And then you have unique experience really in Uganda, in Africa, working on peer education, sex peer education. I think that's going to be invaluable to you, our listener. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So Jen is here too. And uh, we're both looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, I'm super excited for you to be here. And Lynn actually mentioned that, you know, she's met so many people and she really feels like you have a gift. And so we're just so excited to have you here. That's so nice. Thank you so much. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you. Guys. Awesome. So I thought we could just start off, you know, not many people may know what a peer educator is. So mm-hmm. we need to talk about what that is. So I think it looks different in different spaces. So at Colgate, um, for a year and a half, I facilitated a positive sexuality seminar, um, and we were called peer educators. And basically, our role was to facilitate discussion as well as activities centered around positive sexuality, sexual violence prevention, intersectionality, all types of things. So I think what's great about peer educators is you are... Educating is kind of a hard word, but you're working with people who are your peers. It's not someone that, as a student in the class, you're not being taught by, like, an older man or someone who you don't identify with. Right. Right? So, like, facilitating, I think, is a really powerful way to learn these type of um, issues or talk about these type of things because it's less intimidating. Yeah, it's someone kind of on your level. You can relate to them. Yeah. Yeah, and if you need advice, you know, it's someone that, like, is in a similar situation. So I think in when you're talking about education like this, I think it's super important. What was the program like at Colgate that you worked on? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The program was probably one of the best things that I've done. Um, I took the program my sophomore year in college after I'd had a pretty awful experience in college and I needed some way to think of sexuality differently. And this seminar was called Positive Sexuality and I was like, let's do it. It's called Yes Means Yes. Like me and my friends signed up. We did it and I absolutely loved it. Our facilitators were so great. They were seniors or juniors and like I just respected them so much. Um, and then I went abroad to Santiago, had another awful experience with a sexual, awful sexual experience. Came back and was like, I need to do, I like, this is my go time. Like I started applying to be a facilitator when I was abroad, um, got the position and then started working with five other students. So there were six facilitators. The program grew a lot. So we had two different sections. Um, each of us facilitated 40 people wow. each. Wow. That's huge. So, yeah, we, we would yeah. have like 200 or I think we had to turn away 50% of the applicants. So I think wow. we had 200 applicants. Um, the program started getting huge. It was insane. It started off as someone's thesis project like five years before. Like someone was a women's studies major and they were like, I want to start this positive sexuality seminar. That's so And exciting. Colgate's so great because like you can you can do stuff like that. Like that was a thesis and it was put into action. Nice. Um, so started working with this group of five or six uh, other student facilitators and there was three for 
class. Um, and each session we had like a different topic. Like one day we're talking about like rape culture. One day we we're talking about intersectionality. One day we we're talking about BDSM. Like it was, it was really great because the class really bonded. Nice. So you came in like kind of shy and like we would start off being like, Oh, like what's your, what word would you associate with your sex life or nice. something? And it's like very like off the bat, you have to like get in <laughs> You're there. You're in it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Um, so right away, like people were starting to like break down barriers and we were talking, we were being honest. People were crying. Like it was just like, it's so powerful. And the bond that you form is so powerful. So it, it was one of the best things that I've done. Um, at college, for sure. And that kind of spurred me on to do other programs at Colgate. Were there any problems from the school, any pushback or different attitudes about it? Because uh, a program like that that really takes off about sex yeah. is can be scary for people, too. Yeah. I wouldn't say pushback. Yeah. I would say... We had a hard time with budget. They wouldn't give us any money. Well, they would give us money. Sorry, they would totally give us money. But not like a lot of <laughs> money lot. Yeah. Um, that we needed. Um, no, they were, they knew they had to, I think they knew they had to not show um, restraint because Colgate was a very active campus. We had protests all, like, there was a week where I slept in the admission administration building and like yeah. there was so much like, awareness and activism that I don't think it would have gone over well if they were to straight out um, say anything negative about it. Yes. Had they had problems leading up to it? That uh, sexual problems on the campus. And, oh yeah, yeah. Like well, yeah. so as a part, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, college campuses, in particular, I think have uh, the culture is so tox- toxic and. Um, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. Right. So part of this seminar was to break down, like talk about why we do what we do. Like what, so Colgate is very much a party school and like, that's how it's been for a while. Yeah. And typically your Friday night or Saturday night is going out, getting drunk and then maybe having sex. So that's something that has been the case for years. So let's talk about it. Yes means yes. And talk about why it is the case. And then talk about, like, how we can make it healthier. Because, like, that's not healthy. Like, we need to recognize what we're doing subconsciously, nice. right? And see, like, like why are we doing it? It, like, doesn't make sense. Like, why don't want people want to talk about sex or have sex sober, right? But, yeah, the Colgate has had a plethora of issues, as have, as many have a lot of campus. colleges, right? Yeah. Well, you've looked into it, Jen, too, a lot, colleges and the culture there. So Yeah, I was yeah. trying to pull up the statistic from my mind, and I don't want to misquote it, but I think mm-hmm. it was something like in terms of men and kind of them having sexual experiences in college that I think it's something like they're six times more likely to have kind of a negative experience if you're in a college setting rather Mm. compared to a male that's outside and like of the college environment. And I thought that was interesting. And I quote the man statistic because Mm -hmm. a lot of people say, you know, it often happens just to women. It's Mm. a women's thing. Mm -hmm. You're Mm -hmm. nodding. I mean, that's a big myth. I think that goes around that men don't, Mm -hmm. you know, part or participate isn't the right word, but that they're not like a victim in the same way. And so I think that was, that was a shocking statistic Mm -hmm. to me that it was like that drastic, but I think it speaks a lot to the environment Mm -hmm. that college is in. And I think programs like the one you're talking about make a big difference. You know, Mm -hmm. it brings to light. And I think that's part of what Lynn and I are doing is Mm -hmm. why do people do these things? We're Mm -hmm. not here to just be like, no, don't Mm -hmm. do those things, but Mm -hmm. it's like, why are you doing this? You know? 
So when you say they're six times more likely to have a negative sexual experience, you mean like sexual harassment, assault, you're like yeah. all of that is yeah. grouped into one. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't heard that. One of the things uh, that um, I've actually seen men in therapy who've been in colleges and initiations with fraternities mm-hmm. and sexual yeah. things, mm-hmm. and a lot of those can be very sexualized mm-hmm. and be very negative experiences. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, actually, of some of the things you and I have talked about about Uganda, mm-hmm. where a man will have a negative sexual experience, and then mm-hmm. it will translate mm-hmm. to his experiences with women. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll apply it out and mm-hmm. degrade women after that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of uh, transfer, I think, of negative male sexual experiences out to other yeah. groups. No, that's so interesting. I was just talking to a friend this weekend, and he was in a fraternity, and I was talking to him about hazing. Yeah. And at Colgate, um, I just know of some practices that are sexual, and they're, like, yes. very harmful. They're, they're sexual harassment. Yeah. And they happen in fraternity basements. So if you think about, like, the space that you're getting harassed in, yeah. um, as a group of all men, you're being, like, dominated by your older brothers, whatever, and then you bring in women for a party in that same space. Right. And that's kind of like, that's an abusive space. Like, it's just, it's not as, like, first of all, harassing is not, or hazing is not. Right. I'm not pro-hazing, but I'm, it's just like, it's just hard to have everything in that same space. It's Absolutely. like mentally, it's like this is a space where people get hurt. And from the work of the two, Jen and I as therapists, you know, that space is then tainted by trauma, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's reenacted yeah. Yeah, in the same the space, the sexual experience. Yeah. Right. And I've, I've had the experience of working with men who've gone through that yeah. and have done that in those basements you're talking yeah. about, Biz. Yeah. How did the, how did Colgate react to those, these experiences, the hazing and things? I'm sure they're trying to stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are trying to stop it. Um, a bunch of fraternities and sometimes even sororities get in trouble for um, certain acts. But like I wasn't, I wasn't, su- I wasn't a sorority. I wasn't super involved, um, mm-hmm. so I don't really know that many details. Um, but yeah, they tried to crack down because it's a lot of the things are super unhealthy. It's a D one mm-hmm. school. Like there are uh, sports hazing people as well. So like there's just a lot going on. Um, so I think that they really try and listen to what's happening. Wow. But it gets back to what you were saying, Jen, about the impact of this on men, too. You know, and then we see how it it explodes, really, in a school setting. Well, I think it's important to bring up that it isn't just women, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think Mm -hmm. very easily, we talk about this a lot, but in our society, when it's just women, that gets marginalized. And I think it's important to recognize that it's a huge culture thing. You know, Mm -hmm. people talk about rape culture. (laughs) We talk about all these different ideas, Mm -hmm. and it affects everyone. Mm -hmm. And so everyone really needs to be participating. And I think Mm -hmm. raising awareness is a huge way to get people to start recognizing what they're doing and that it makes a difference. And that I think a lot of people in those situations with hazing, what I've experienced is when I talk to some people who have been hazed, they have this mentality of sort of like, okay, but that brought me closer to these Mm -hmm. people. So it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, that part is a good thing, but the hazing Mm -hmm. itself, you know, that having to be Mm -hmm. degraded in order to Mm -hmm. feel closer to somebody like that's not a healthy path Mm -hmm. to building community and a bond, you know, and it's, it can be traumatizing for a lot of people. 
Biz, you were talking, one of the things I found most moving about conversations with you is really about your work in Uganda. Mm-hmm. And it's different. You took what you learned at Colgate and that class and the experience, it sounds so exciting. Mm-hmm. And then you took it really worldwide. Mm-hmm. What, uh, first, how'd you get the courage to do that, develop mm-hmm. that and take it? And mm-hmm. um, what was the process of that? Because I think a lot of listeners might be interested mm-hmm. in how they could do more. Right. Um, so in college, uh, my senior year, I started doing a bunch of so, a bunch of different things. So I was doing that yes means yes class. I was um, training sexual assault prevention to like 500 students to eight students, like a couple wow. times a month. I was I started a couple thesis projects where I I just did a bunch of stuff, and I just got so tired my senior year. And then I graduated, and I was like, well. I didn't have a job. I was like, what am I going to do? Like, this is kind of, mm-hmm. this is, I just, I don't know what's next. Um, I studied physics at Colgate and my thesis was in Uganda. So I was working with the Ugandan team to build solar electricity in a machine shop in Uganda. So in my mind, I was like, I want to go back to Uganda and I also have this big passion. Um, so I applied to a fellowship called Mama Hope and they're based in San Francisco. Um, and they have a a bunch of projects around the world they're expanding right now but when I applied there were a few in Africa and one in Guatemala and one of their projects was fundraising for a maternity ward in Uganda so each fellow had to fundraise $20,000 we had to go through international development classes we had to do fundraising classes we had to give these speeches in front of a bunch of people explaining why we were passionate about what we were doing so got this fellowship fundraised and then I moved to Uganda and I started working at the health center and it was so fun. And then I had this conversation with my host brother and he was telling me, we were just talking about, it started off talking about <coughs> HIV. We were talking about HIV in a village and someone perhaps having HIV. Yeah. And that conversation led into rape and sexual violence. And he was telling me that in school he had learned that women like to be raped They actually enjoy it. And if they didn't, they wouldn't allow a penis to enter their vagina. They could simply shift their legs. And those big myths. Right. Yeah. So, and he was like, well, it's interesting because like a lot of women who get raped, like end up forming a great, powerful relationship with their rapist and they like get married and they're happy. Mm -hmm. Like this is like, I totally like, are people happy when they're raped? Like, is this a good thing? And I was just like, wow. Yeah. Um, first of all, yeah. I was like, first of all, so like I, when I was having this conversation, I was like, I need to listen. Yeah. First of all, because this is something he was taught in school. This is like a 35 year old man who's grown up in a Ugandan village. Yeah. Um, how can I respond to this through a cultural lens in a way that doesn't make it seem like I'm trying to teach him something? Like, I don't want to appear right. like You're I'm gonna, like, this white, him. yeah, this woman from the West who like knows everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided that we were going to start a peer education class. Um, talked to my family about it, and they were super surprised that someone in their family had this viewpoint. Um, so we worked together to create this class. We had a class of girls from ages 10 to 20, and then a class of men ages 20 to 30. Um, and in Uganda, they were really... They really wanted to talk about things. It like age group mattered. It wasn't gender. It was like our first class. We had like seventy people. It was wow. like oh my everyone gosh. came, and I was like, oh my god, this <laughs> is <Amazing>. so, yeah. <laughs> so much. Um, so they were like, we just don't want to talk about these issues with people who aren't our age, and that's how we split it up. Like I didn't know that before that's then. So like before, I'd be like, oh, yeah. like may- maybe men and women, and then like uh, we bring them together sometimes or whatever. But 
they were like, it's very important that we only talk to people who are the same age. So we split into different age groups, and then we started writing curriculum. So me and my host sister and my host dad sometimes um, wrote the curriculum together, and they would facilitate. So in that situation, the I helped write curriculum, but I wasn't the facilitator. Yeah. Because, first of all, I didn't speak the language. Um, and second of all, like, I think it would be too, like... It would be, it wouldn't be like peer education if I had tried to facilitate because I'm not one of their, I wasn't one of their peers. They didn't know right. me. So yeah, that's what I did. That's powerful. And I, I love too that you were willing to kind of take that somewhat back seat because I know a lot of times that's a problem that comes up when mm-hmm. with peer education or like wanting to talk to somebody about these things is sometimes right. people want to take over instead of allowing other people to kind of facilitate or right. you mentioned listening too that right. even though this person had this very challenging viewpoint for you mm-hmm. you didn't just go in and say no that's wrong mm-hmm. which is what a lot of people will do right. but really you were able to step back and go okay like let me think about how to approach right. this but I feel like it's different like if that had happened at Colgate it would have been different yeah right so like because my the way that I was viewed in this Ugandan village or I was such an outsider right and um neocolonialism and everything that tells them that like white people are coming in because they know everything like that you have to be so conscious of right and at Colgate if it was like one of my peers I wouldn't have react I mean I I would have been nice I would have tried to be nice Mm -hmm. and tried to listen but like it's harder to have understanding in that situation. Yeah, I think that that brings up a really great point, though, about how when we are talking about sex, like people who feel like outsiders or mm-hmm. people who feel like other people coming in, I, what that brings up for me is kind of the idea of the label of feminist, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who for a long time wouldn't adopt that moniker because it felt like if you said you're a feminist, you're like taking over and you're telling people what to do and you know more than they do and Mm -hmm. this kind of I'm better than you feeling which really isn't what feminism is about Mm -hmm. but I think you know that you were able to have a different experience where you were an outsider Mm -hmm. and recognize that you know your job isn't to kind of take over there I think Mm -hmm. it's really powerful it's more of a collaboration really that's what's so important and that's what you're saying Jen about feminism it should be a collaboration (laughs) and that's a different type of thing Mm -hmm. you mentioned Biz some of the myths that you confronted then in Mm -hmm. Uganda Mm -hmm. you know can you tell us a little bit about that process Mm -hmm. and just how when you're in a culture you want to be respectful, really listen mm-hmm. to their myths and use them to really understand, better mm-hmm. understand each other. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you a couple. Sure. Um, one of the first sessions we had with the older age group, um, we were talking about, I had a list of questions about rape and uh, what is rape? Like, what's okay? And one man spoke up and he said, uh, if a woman gives me a piece, or if I give a woman a piece of candy in my bedroom, then she has to have sex with me. Or if I call someone using, like, if I paid money on my phone to call someone, they owe me that money, which is, like, they owe me sex. And, like, that's something that we can see. We have, like, comparative things in the U.S., right? Absolutely. But not, like, not, not quite a strong. Right. Um, so that was a situation where I would have someone translate for me. Like, if I was sitting in the session, it was... It wasn't very common that I was sitting in in the older session. 
but I would have someone translate and then like right away we were switching and we were doing another activity to just like try and get in their heads and like see what was going on and then come up with a way to solve, like not solve it, but like talk about it more. Um, and then finally, after a couple sessions, we had like men getting mad at this man being like, you can't say that anymore. You know what I'm saying? So then we saw a shift and it was, it was excellent, but that's like the power of peer education, right? It's like them teaching themselves. Another myth that I came across on day one was men are obvious. It's a very patriarchal society. So whenever a woman approaches a man, whenever they're like engaging in conversation, the woman has to, not has to, but typically gets down on their knees um, and like bows down, right? You can't look at them in the eyes. Um, And that was something that was very new to me. I haven't seen it at all. My host dad, uh, one of the first days was trying to explain it to me and he was like, I'm not, I don't like it. I don't like when people do it. I'm trying to get my family not to do it. Um, and he was telling me like the backstory of it and he was like, the, it comes from this historical moment when it was super rainy in Uganda and it was super muddy and the king had on really nice clothes. They were all white and like he didn't want to get them muddy. So he had his men lay on the ground in the mud in their white clothes. Okay, so you can just imagine, like, a bunch of Ugandan men in white clothes lying on the mud, and then he walked on top of them, right? So he wouldn't get money. So then these men went home to their wives, and they were like, hey... You have to you have to respect me because like this king just disrespected me. Now you need to kneel in front of me and show me respect every day. And that's the story around this village of like why people do this every day. Is it ever questioned or is it no. seen as like oh that's just why yeah, we do that's it? just yeah. Um, I think with the younger generations, it's starting to be questioned within the past couple of years. I think because yeah. my host dad has really tried to change some things in the village. A lot of the women were being abused. He's really tried to like bring aware to some of the unfair situations in the village but he I think generationally like the older women are still they're not they're still doing it and they're trying to get I mean I can't speak generic like generic right, like that, right but in, of course, in but my view that's what it's you mentioned your host mom was even still teaching the daughters mm-hmm. to do it yeah. and the dad was trying to fight it right because he could see that that's not going to be so right. healthier for his daughters at right. this point it's a, I think it really depends where you grow up um, and she grew up in a village um, and she was teaching her daughter she had like six six five five or six daughters um, and she was like you need to keep doing this it's respectful it's so embarrassing when you don't do it and when like a man comes to our house and like you're not bowing and you're not getting on your knees um so it was an interesting dynamic because you had that tradition like strong rooted tradition in this ugandan village and that's something that's hard to go against in this family and then you had this my host dad who had was traveled a lot he was super he's very educated um and he saw the harm in it you know, so it was just like an interesting dynamic in the house for sure. It reminds me a little bit of our earlier conversation about the men in the fraternities. They're mm-hmm. degraded. Mm-hmm. You know, or they have a history of degradation. Mm-hmm. And then it translates over to their gender attitudes toward women, mm-hmm. you know, which is really sad, all of that. Did you right. see change in that mythology while you were there? Mm-hmm. Or is that so entrenched that that's... So. I was only there for like three and a half months. Yeah. So I can't say. I would say that I saw a change in students that I, uh, in the peer education class. Yeah. I would say that for sure. And Uh they, their feedback also showed that, that they were like, their mindsets, not like changing, but like questioning. Uh Uh-huh. Right? And. The seed. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Because um, we would have, like, one of our exercises that one of my host sisters came up with was you need to get a partner and you need to look at each other in the eyes for 30 seconds and you can't laugh. And it was very hard. I don't know if anyone, like, very few could do it. Yeah. Well, it's um, a deep intimacy yeah. very suddenly. Right? Yeah. So um, we could see, like, subtle improvements and things like that. Nice. But no, I wouldn't say, like, in the whole village, right? Just people that I'd seen every day. You um, also talked about safe spaces in Uganda, mm-hmm. too, and uh, mentioned to me that you gave a talk there, really, about that mm-hmm. experience and how to develop that. Can mm-hmm. you say more about what a safe space might look like there? Right. So when I was fundraising for this project in Uganda, um, we had to give speeches at events. So my whole premise was... I had studied women's studies as a minor in college, and I, like, wanted to create safe spaces for women. They're so important mentally and (laughs) physically, right? So in this village, there was no health center within an hour. So women were giving birth, like... On the, in the mud, right? Yeah. Or like, if they needed to get to a hospital, they would have to get on a motorcycle. Oh if they were, gosh. yeah. So it's just like, they're so, just so harmful, right? So in creating this health center, this maternity ward, most of the employees are women. There's a group of women called the Subi women. Subi means hope in, uh, Lusoga. Um, and they are the nurses, or some of them are, uh, they do some nurse duties or they do cleaning. They do a bunch of different things at the health center. Um, and they're really in the community. They're doing like plays to bring up issues that are important or like they're really like a powerhouse. Cool. Um, so that was the project that was like getting $20,000 to help them build a maternity ward. Like they needed more space to be giving birth to all these babies. So, that's definitely such an important space in that area just because there are so few. Mm-hmm. There's like very, you have to go so far to even get to a hospital or like a center, anything. It just, you need a space where there's like a powerhouse of women. That provides really a sense of security, support, mm-hmm. even a physical space right. really for women in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that similar? What were the safe spaces like at Colgate? Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, we talk about how for men, the safe space is the world sometimes, mm-hmm. though that's not true from what we've just spoken about right. related to fraternities and things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at Colgate, this is a hard question because it's yeah. something we people were talking about um, while I was still there. So Colgate has a women's study center. And what's really interesting is that it's in the basement of a dorm. So it's a very small, low seat. Like, there's two classrooms, and there's one general area. It's very, very small. But typically, if you were to ask someone at Colgate, like, that's a safe space. People hang out there all the time, uh, people of different cultures, ethnicities, genders, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a safe space where you can go if you need to be somewhere that you just, like, need to be yourself. Yeah. Um, and then people would joke that the safe space for men was econ building. And the mm-hmm. econ building was, like, this huge, beautiful, <laughs> like, newly, like, so, like, beautiful building. People at women's studies would be like, we get a basement of a dorm. That's kind of bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it looks it looks like that, but then also like spaces you create. So like yes means yes. I feel like was a safe space, even though it wasn't like a physical room, or it was like we were in the same room each time. But like the space that we brought together as the it forty was a people, it was a created space. Um, and created spaces are so important, right? Not just not just the physical space, but also the created space. 
even the idea, you know, always think of our podcast, if it could be like a safe podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe in that sense over the air, Mm -hmm. you know, with our listeners, really to create those feelings so they could have these feelings in themselves. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea that it could be different. Mm -hmm. It's helpful to hear you talk about what it means really in different cultures and contexts. Can you talk a little bit more, too, about what you were experiencing in terms of, you know, like the econ building versus Mm -hmm. the basement? And Mm -hmm. was there a lot of pushback against even just kind of having the basement? And, you know, what I experience with certain clients, I used to work in a school, too, is sometimes Mm -hmm. they'll have questions like, well, why do you even need this space? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that you're being exclusionary mm-hmm. to other people instead of it being a safe place. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you're excluding all these other people. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to look at who's asking those questions and yeah. like how you respond. So I think it's root. Like, I think you can look at roots in um, society. So, you know how people say, and I also believe you can't be sexist against women. And that's because there's a whole society and like power structure that doesn't allow women to be sexist towards men. And that's just a political structure. That's just, that's right. just as the way it, it stands is. right now. Right, right. Yeah. So um, I think it's similar. If you're, if someone's saying like, why do you need, like, why don't I have a safe space as a heterosexual, cisgender male, white male, why don't I have a space to hang out with my friends? Well, okay. First of all, your safe space could be like, not, it's not going to be your fraternity. Cause we talked about like all right. of that hurt that's in the fraternity for amazing. Right. But what about that group of people that you have the privilege to like, you have a space, right? And like, it, there's just so, there aren't enough spaces for women, uh, to be able to voice all of their concerns or to feel completely relaxed. It just doesn't exist naturally. Yeah. I mean, it's so helpful to hear you talk about that. I mean, we both work, uh, you know, I work at the University of California and I've worked there 35 years and it's a huge problem, you know, mm-hmm. in the uh, medical school too, right. even with safe spaces for women and harassment and, right. and people not understanding that, yeah. that women really need that. How do you see that in the sciences? Um, there's a whole uh, movement, you may know about it, the STEM movement, okay, which is yeah. science and technology, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, women actually receive awards, uh, you mm-hmm. know, for doing safe spaces within the science technology area. Mm-hmm. But uh, the advances have been very, you know, they have been smaller than expected over time. Mm-hmm. And a big one of that, I think, mm-hmm. is that men still are voicing their power mm-hmm. in those situations. Women don't become first authors on mm-hmm. papers. Mm-hmm. They don't achieve tenure mm-hmm. in the way they can expect to, mm-hmm. uh, the men can expect to. They're not in the higher tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have the amount of grant money. Right. So it just covers the, right. the spectrum, you know, yeah. and so science and technology and medicine are still not the safe space mm-hmm. we might expect. Right. They're foreign space really right. for women still I totally yeah. agree. there was yeah. like one or two other women who are physics majors my year yeah it was predominantly men yeah and there was a sense of women are don't belong here so yeah it's interesting to hear it was very it was very prevalent yeah and maybe thinking about in the sciences and mm-hmm. uh the sciences globally how we could have safer spaces for women but it's the mm-hmm. whole culture mm-hmm. how would you see, you know, one of our, our interests, Biz, is really helping parents and children have safe spaces. How could parents 
mm-hmm. uh, who are raising, say, little boys, little girls, and little mm-hmm. <laughs> non-gendered, <laughs> the, the open field of kids, how could they help their kids feel safe? Um, I feel like listening is so important, and that's like such a gen- like a general thing to say. But it's so um, crucial. Yeah, just like being able to be heard is so important because I feel like a lot of times as a woman, you feel silenced and you need a space where, or you need people close to you, you need a family where you are heard, right? And like every, if something hurts, like we should fix it. Like be comfortable talking to your family about it or like don't kick things under the carpet, you know? And I think that could be changing with our generation. I think it's harder for uh, people who are, or who are like our parents' generation or whatever to, to be like that. I think millennials are might be changing that norm, but I think listening and being heard is so, it's essential. I think it's the number one. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's for all generations of parents. Even older parents have to listen to the next generation down. And I, I like what your host dad was really doing in Uganda. He was listening to really what was going on in the culture and really making a great effort, you know, to change it, but still married with daughters who are doing it. So he's right. working in his environment to make a difference. Right. And yeah. what that brings up for me is the idea that I think because males have been given this sort of more privileged role. I mean, I know that's a like such yeah. a triggering word for some people, but they have more power in society. I think it's really important that instead of just saying like, well, you know, a lot of people see it as like, well, you know, we need to take them down, but instead mm-hmm. it's like, how can they use that power mm-hmm. to bring other people up mm-hmm. to kind of widen the platform so that, I think it's so powerful that a lot of men, unfortunately, are more willing to listen to men. Mm -hmm. And so the men who have these more open ideas, more inclusive ideas, more collaborative ideas, I Mm -hmm. think they need to use their power to be able to help other people see Mm -hmm. the importance of that and how powerful we can all be working together. Mm -hmm. So then, like, something that came up at Colgate a bunch was how do we get men to talk about these issues? Yeah. Is it okay to create a male-only class? Right. Because, first of all, as a female, it's not my job to, like, go into a group of men and be like, okay, this is what it feels like to be a woman, and this is what it feels like to be sexually harassed or assaulted or raped or whatever. That's not my job. Right. right? And that's Mm -hmm. so many people. You can say that about so many different things. So is it okay if you have a group of men trying to come up with solutions for a problem that they're not really directly – well, they are involved in, but they're not the ones being – Right. That's something at Colgate we talked about a bunch. I don't really know. The and gets one idea I have is uh, the one about collaboration we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. You know, maybe women are there as collaborators, mm-hmm. in a sense, peer educators mm-hmm. within that group and mm-hmm. really trying to share ideas. Right. But uh, the men have to be listening. And they have to be participating in it. And that gets back to sciences. Yeah. You know, sciences is the same thing. Women have to have their voice. And the mother in Uganda has to have her voice, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's a change that we're really hoping to make. Right. Well, we want to thank you, Biz, very much for coming here today. It's been really exciting. And I know you're going back, you know, mm-hmm. hoping to go back to Africa very soon. Mm-hmm. What, That's exciting. What would you like to do there when you go back? Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to continue my thesis work. Um, so my old thesis advisor is there right now, and she's hoping to start a few other projects. 
um, building locally sourced and sustainable electricity, thermal electricity and gravity lights that are all built using local capacity and local resources. So I'm hoping to do that in about two months. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. I mean, talking to you today has been wonderful. You've shared so much, and it also gives me a lot of hope about kind of our future as you're talking about, you know, young people getting together and coming up with ideas for how to do things differently. So thank you very much. Good luck. Thank you. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.